Fidei family, and thanks for joining us to hear directly from one of our heroes in the field. Shachar Pellet is joining us between deployments to Gaza. On October 6th, Shachar was a cybersecurity executive recently engaged to the girl of his dreams and planning his wedding. Then October 7th changed everything. Today, he'll tell you about his remarkable service as a first responder on October 7th, stabilizing Israeli towns and fighting Hamas terrorists, and then subsequently serving in Gaza in the most complex urban warfare setting history has ever witnessed. Between missions, Shachar doesn't stop. After seeing his people, his brothers and sisters in arms, maligned in the media, he has taken it upon himself to counter anti-Israel propaganda himself by sharing his personal experiences through direct person-to-person -person conversations with the hopes of touching the hearts and minds of those inundated and indoctrinated with misinformation. We are so honored to have Shachar Peled with us today. Shachar, please take us to the front lines. Thank you, Lara, for having me, and thank you, everyone, for watching. Um, honored to be here. As uh, I was introduced, my name is Shahar, born and raised in Israel. I'm 30. In my actual life, as, as was told, I'm a cybersecurity executive. Back when I was a soldier, I served in a partial special forces unit. And when I finished my duty at 21, I have been on reserves ever since. Two, four, six weeks a year, eight times a year sometimes, to be ready in case something like October 7th happens. And and it did. And everything ever since October 7th, my life stopped. I became a soldier of the IDF, a soldier, a soldier of Israel on, on two different fronts. But I want to take you into my story that started on October 7th, around 7.30 a.m. Before that, I will say that today is a very sad day for me personally, as two of the three soldiers that were killed, and you heard about this morning, are from my unit that I've known for many years. And unfortunately, it's not the first one that it's not the first time my unit uh, has had casualties. And every time it just breaks your heart again, knowing that this could have, could have easily, easily be me or others. And each one of them is a whole whole life with family and bright future. And they've paid the ultimate sacrifice for the future of Israel. And I'm speaking today on their behalf as well. And on behalf of those who are still fighting in Gaza, the most vicious terrorists in history, but they have to do it because we truly have no other choice. And I'm going to join them in a few days because I also don't have any other choice because I was asked to and I was called. And if you're being called to serve on reserves, you really can't say no. So on October 7th in the morning, my fiance woke me up. We live three miles away from Lebanon. And she said it were at war. It was a very dramatic way to wake up. We didn't hear about any casualties and things like that, but it was serious because they said a terrorist have invaded Israel, and that hasn't happened in a long time from Gaza, but they also said this might start from Lebanon. So we decided to pack our bags and drive to the center to our parents. I had a feeling this might be bigger than I imagined, although no one told me to come to reserves. So I took my military bag with me. I have a big duffel bag with a vest and helmet and uniform and everything I need beside a rifle, which I don't own. And I was right because 30 minutes in the drive, I got a call from my commander saying, report to base. It was Saturday, it was Shabbat, he's religious. I knew this was serious. Although, as I said, we didn't know what happened back then. We just heard some things on the news. And I dropped my fiance at her parents' home. I gave her this big hug that, you know, for so many of us was the last one. And she was crying. 
I wasn't because I was sure I'm going to be back in a few days. I wasn't emotional about it. And she asked me what everyone asks is, do you have to go? And my answer was, no, I don't really have to go. No one can force us to go. But but yeah, we have to go if we're being called to literally protect our friends and family. And not just thousands of miles away, but you know, in Israel and a few miles away from where I grew up. And literally in towns that I have so many friends living in. Then, yeah, we have to go. And the last thing she asked me before I drove off was, should we postpone the wedding? Because our wedding, our wedding was due on October 27th. And again, I said, no, it's probably going to end in a week. And I was wrong in both. And actually, the day of the wedding, I was in Gaza and didn't get married. And we postponed it. And I drove to base and everything was different because we didn't just go through the same cycle of getting our gear and rifles and getting ready, which takes a long time. The first um, place they took us to was this room with a big table with dog tags. You might wear them or know them for the hostages, but the origin of these are the soldiers that we, when we engage in a battle, we have to wear a dog tag with our name and military ID. We have it on our necks and in our boots. And I haven't worn one since my active duty nine years ago. And that made everything more real. And instead of going from one station to another to take all the gear, we went to this emergency warehouse and we've been given these big bags with everything pre-packed for us. It can weigh 60 to 100 pounds and it's ready for war. Grab and go. Then, you know, the news were clearer, still not clear. We knew about the 22 casualties back then. And we had a few minutes to make some phone calls. And I called my siblings, I called my parents, my fiance. You might think that the call with my fiance would be the hardest one because you know, it's my fiance. But she was going through what so many of her friends were going through at that time. And she knew because I went to reserves many times and mostly in the West Bank, some in the Gaza border, some near Lebanon. But it didn't feel so much different back then. It felt different, but we didn't know it was a war. And the call with my mom was the hardest one because she's really not an emotional person. I think I've never heard her cry even when her parents, my grandparents died, but she said things that literally broke my heart, like protect both our hearts or I'm the youngest. And she said, if something happens to my youngest, I'm going to. And my mom thought she was done with the idea. I'm the youngest out of four. I have an older brother who's also um, a partial prison officer. And in one second, both her sons were called to reserves again when all of Israel and so many from across the world were in front of the TV, just waiting to hear what's going on near Gaza. And we drove south. And the first thing we did is someone just said, we should write our wills. And it made sense. Although I'm 30, I never thought about writing a will. But I didn't want my fiance to not get the rights of an IDF widower because of the two and a half weeks that separated us, that separated us from being married had something happened to me. So I wrote it on a piece of paper and I put it in the front pocket of my vest. Maybe I should digitalize this now. And the next thing we did is write a letter that you might see on social media when a soldier dies. We're very, we know how to do it. I've done it in 2012, I've done it in 2014. And, but now you're in a different point in life. Many of my comrades have families and kids. And, and it's a different letter. It's in my iPhone notes called October 7th, do not open. And I hope no one, no one ever needs to open it. 
I don't know what I wrote. I just remember thinking that I don't want to go without telling my loved ones that I love them and that I'm proud of what I did and that I want them to keep living. Because if there is one way to go when you're young is protecting your country and your people, just like our parents did and our grandparents and ancestors throughout history. And we got to the kibbutzim, the towns near the border, were deployed to an area next to Be'eri and Alumim. You might know the names. They've been hit very hard and we're tasked to help stabilize the area alongside other forces who were there before us. We needed to chase down terrorists and do whatever we need to to bring the stability and safety back. But when we got there, it was a combination of a horror and, and an apocalyptic movie. Everything was, was either on fire or burnt. Bodies on the streets and in cars, blood, bullet holes, bullet shells everywhere. And a smell of death. And the terrorists were there and hand grenades and RPGs and Kalachnikovs and mini Korans and the green headbands. And it was real and it was one of the most peaceful places in Israel that you used to work, just want to travel at and see the nature. And it was horrible. And the first thing I was asked is by my commander saying, where is Daniel? Daniel is a family member of mine. My brother is married to his sister. And he was also serving with me in the same reserves unit. So I checked my family chat and they said that Daniel was at a party called Nova, which we knew nothing about. Later, we learned that we were less than a mile away from there. And, you know, we saw the first responders who were there first, the active soldiers who didn't need to go get the equipment they just need to drive there or just were there before and other soldiers and our forces and my unit and we've seen things that no one should ever see you see bodies of women who went through the most horror things you can imagine before they were shot in the back of the head with their legs broken apart not just open broken and blood coming out and when you flip them over you see that they're cut off their breasts and it wasn't wasn't just one or two and I'm lucky that my unit wasn't in charge of recovering bodies, but the other side of my unit was. And this is what they did for a few days. We had to chase down terrorists, which is, yeah, it's very scary, but it wasn't just us or many forces. And we didn't have to see so many of these. We saw what we saw outside. One of the days, like the first few hours, we saw a guy that ran away from the party that told the force that, you know, he just was forced. They literally opened his eyes to watch when they were raping his girlfriend, one after the other, after the other, about 10 terrorists before they shot her in the back of the head. And it was just horrible. You didn't imagine how big this was because we we're just us in this area, but apparently it was in so many other areas, but we didn't, you know, we couldn't just check social media and news every minute. So we didn't know how big this was. And the second day, our unit found 16 bodies of Thai people outside the kibbutz. They were working in the fields and we called Zaka, the organization that recovers the bodies. And one of the Zaka members came and he said that he just left the house in Kfar Aza when they recovered 22 dead babies. Some of them were beheaded, some of them were burned, some of them were tied together in a wire. And every day you just understand how big this was. And I remember the first day before we even got there, someone from our unit said, would be lucky if this day ends at 500. And we thought it was crazy. And in the fourth day of doing this, I was injured and taken to the ER. Luckily, nothing life-threatening, but I couldn't walk for a few days. And I, I was unconscious for a while. And 
they asked me how I was. And by the time I got to the hospital, I felt pretty much better. But the doctors told me that for me, this war was over and I can't go back. Obviously, my family was happy because I was I was alive, nothing life-threatening, and I wasn't near Gaza anymore. But I thought of my grandparents who were Holocaust survivors, and I thought of my father who fought in the Yom Kippur War, and I knew that this is our generation's war. And as long as I can walk, as long as I can help, I'm going to rejoin my unit. And two days after, the first Friday after October 7th, we learned that Daniel was murdered at a Nova party while trying to help a woman got shot, and it was devastating to the family. He was this beacon of light, this, the most optimistic person, pretty beautiful guy that all the girls loved, but also so humble. And understanding that he was murdered doing what he loved the most, alongside almost 400 beautiful men and women who were murdered at that party. And that he will never be there ever since we had another joint nephew that is named after him and life will never be the same no matter how much we can move on and that was also the day we decided to postpone the wedding because daniel was also helping us organize the wedding and he was very connected in the nightlife uh nightlife session in tel aviv and i remember we wanted a very specific dj that was out of budget for us and Daniel called him and the DJ called me a few minutes after saying, if Daniel is going to this wedding, of course I'm doing it. So Daniel is not going to be at the wedding. The DJ will. And we're still thinking of ways to commemorate Daniel. And ever since my fiance and I were just hoping and praying that our wedding list that has gotten shorter will not get any shorter than this. Unfortunately, it has in the following months. And... We, I went back to my unit after a few days and we got ready to go into Gaza, not before we knew how big this was. We learned the numbers. We knew the atrocities. They weren't just trying to kill as many people as they could in the least amount of times. They were trying to mutilate and make sure people won't be identified and people will be terrorized forever and just leave. We also know that they said they're not going to stop until they kill us all and October 7th was just the beginning. But we also know that Gaza is the most complicated place on earth to fight in, with thousands of pre-armed buildings, with bombs and mines just waiting for us to make the wrong step, with over 300 miles of tunnels, terror tunnels used by the terrorists with gear and equipment and everything they needed for months. They also had over 2.3 million human shields they are planning to use very well, but they also had over 250 of, uh, over 240 of our people being held hostage, not just soldiers, but babies, women, elderly, people that could have easily been my family or yours or anyone else's. They didn't think who they were killing, who they were kidnapping. They killed Arabs as well. And they killed Christians and they kidnapped and killed Thai people and Arabs as well. Everyone they could see. And we went into Gaza and we've experienced the most horrific things. And to understand how crazy the world is, I can't even share the specific operations because the idea of fear that I'll be prosecuted, me or others who are into Gaza, in Hague, if they can connect to a specific operation. But I can say that our units and our sister units have experienced horrible things. One of them walked into a very big mosque in northern Gaza, and they saw a big entrance to a tunnel, but next to it was a camera that pointed at them. 
And I thought of myself, I was, I didn't know what to do with the camera. I wasn't trained and I thought I probably would have shot the camera and this is what they did. But they also triggered a bomb that killed four of them and severely injured six. My friend was the medic in this unit and he saved his best friend's life, but they've lost so much. In the same day, another sister unit was walking and they saw about 200 civilians walking towards them, mostly women and kids. And out of the 200, two terrorists rose and fired an RPG kill two soldiers. The rest of them, there are dozens of soldiers in a tank, they didn't shoot back. Because the idea for some engagement said, if we can't kill the terrorists, we're not going to kill 200 civilians because of it. And we found this family of Palestinians that didn't want to evacuate because they said that two days before their, their neighbors tried to do it and they were killed by Hamas. So they first walked them to the corridor. And this Palestinian hugged the Arabic speaking soldier. And the older brother said, please finish this. Please get us, our, get us our lives back. You know, we knew that we're not just fighting for Israel and for anyone who wants to live in peace here. We're also fighting for the Palestinians who want to live in peace. And I know you might ask how many of them are there. I don't know. These are the ones we saw. Obviously, when you're near the corridor, you see thousands of Palestinians walking south, but we're not next to them. We don't talk to them. I sure hope that there are a lot of them because we need voices of normal people who just want to live in peace. But this area in Gaza and the West Bank was just radicalized for so many years. And during the first ceasefire, I was chosen by the IDF spokesperson unit to be interviewed to major news channels across the world. Many of them you know, and I've done over 30 of these. And in many, there were a systematic um, effort for all of them. And many of them just systematically edited my interviews and answers to fit their agenda, to showcase us as these monsters. And if they couldn't have done it by editing, they might not even release or publish the interview. And the spokesperson unit told me that if they haven't published my interview, it means that you won. And I said, if they haven't published my interview, we all lost because we have nothing to hide. We have the truth. We have the facts. We have our first person experience and our voices need to be heard. And the reason I was doing it is because I was in there and I speak English and I'm speaking on behalf of those who are still fighting in there or those in heaven. Those that people call murderers and genocidal because they are just brainwashed and miseducated. So I was sent to America to speak to people who needed to listen and needed to hear about the truth. And I've done a lot of interviews, but the new rule was I'm only doing live interviews because if you want to ask me questions, you might as well listen to the answers. And I told them they can ask whatever they want and they can fact check whatever I say. And I've done interviews on the left and the right, and it was great, but it wasn't enough because when you go to college campuses and when you see the amount of hate, the amount of lies being spread, when you talk to people who are smart, educated, Ivy League students, and you ask them, what's your source of information besides TikTok? And so many of them said Al Jazeera. I knew we're in deep trouble because we cannot trust Western media. And I was shocked because I asked these people, what would you do? What do you think we should do? And they all say ceasefire. And these are smart people. I'm not talking about the anti-Semites and radical Muslims who are paid professional to lead these charters, these chapters of pro-Palestinian and pro-Hamas rallies, because they know that if you want to be pro-Palestinian, you need to be anti-Hamas. 
if you want to be pro-Palestinian, you also need to be pro-Israel. And I asked them, are they also ceasefire? And I was like, okay, and then what? Are you going to release the hostages? So many of them said, if there'll be a ceasefire, Hamas wouldn't need to hold them. I was like, you don't understand that you, we're not talking about rational people. We're talking about a radical jihadist terrorist organization that you can't rational with. And I tell them, even if we do get the hostages back, are you going to ensure this never happens again? If this was on your border with Al-Qaeda after 9-11, would you be okay them being a mile away from you saying they're not going to stop until they kill you all? Would you be okay going to sleep not knowing when someone's going to go into your house and kill or kidnap your whole family? What would you have expected your government to do if this was next to America? If this happened to you, you would, you would have expected them to not stop until they can ensure safety. And if all the answers made sense and you said no for the first two, and then, yeah, I would have, would have expected my government to react. And you still keep asking Israel to cease fire, you're a hypocrite. Because we're not okay with that too. And our lives matter too. And I went back to Israel and to Gaza and this time southern Gaza. And we've experienced more horrific things. And the first day there was a rain of mortars that hit the, the, the unit. And two soldiers were injured and taken to a hospital with a chopper. Later we learned that one of them was, didn't even make it to the hospital. And the other one is severely injured and paralyzed. The same day I learned that in this neighborhood, one of my brother's closest friends from there were kids, he was 36, was killed in the neighborhood. He had this famous photo of him, the last one holding a drawing that his three-year-old son made for him. He said, Daddy, I love you. I miss you. Please don't get hurt. I was close friends with his younger sister. And this is when, when some people in Israel said that the best or happiest place to be is in Gaza because you don't have your phone on you and you can't check the news. And when you hear that someone died, you just hear a name, a number of a unit and numbers of a number of casualties. You don't get the names. And sometimes it's better. And when you get out, when you check your phone, you're just heartbroken day in and day out. And Israelis are emotionally broken. How can we not be after what happened to us, after what keeps happening to us every day? But we're also spiritually and, and physically stronger than ever because we have to. And we've experienced more horrific things that I wish I could share with you without connecting me to the missions. And I'm happy to do it on a one-on-one. -on -one. But some of it you heard on the news with luring soldiers in with speakers of Hebrew voices. And some of there were factories of long-distance missiles in kindergartens. And I was taken out of Gaza again to go to America again. And I met more people and I did more interviews and I've done a lot of events with people who needed to hear because they are on the fence and don't know what, not who to support or people who supported and not sure they had the truth and how they can help. And also people who are anti-Israel, but not the radical ones, those who needed to listen. And I asked so many people, what side of history do you want to be on? The side that supports Hamas, including Iran and Russia and China and North Korea and Hezbollah and the Houthis and any other terror organization in the world or the signs of Western civilization with the United States of America and the UK and Germany and Ukraine and France and so many other countries. How can you not side with that? And I heard the same nonsense again and again of ceasefire and ceasefire and ceasefire. 
And I told them that if I have to make a decision and I speak on behalf of the vast majority of Israelis and vast majority of IDF soldiers, then we tell you that we just want to get back to our lives. We want this war to end more than anyone else in the world. I want to go back to my life. I want to be at home. I haven't been there since October 7th. I landed in Israel from the U.S. a few hours ago. And I'm at my parents' house. I took my military stuff and I'm going back in a few days. I want to go back to my fiance. I want to marry her. I want to start my own company. I want to have kids and I want to grow. I want to grow them to a better world. But if we have to make a decision between keep fighting this war until we get all of our people back and ensure this never happens again, or go back to our lives now and wait to be attacked again, our decision is very easy. And I believe any of your decisions would have been the same. And I told these people that all the lies that you see on the news are anything between anti-Semites anti -Semites and just pure Hamas PR and propaganda. They are so good at this. And they've been building this for years. And if you don't think this is related to Iran and Qatar and the way that they have infiltrated everything that is good in the United States in the past 15 years, purchasing some of your education system and their annual political system, brainwashing your kids on social media. If you don't think this is related, that you are naive because it's all related. And I was here to tell them that I could not have been more proud to be an IDF soldier. I could not have been more proud to be Jewish and to be Israeli. I could not have been more proud of the way that we engage in this war because we are the most humane military force in history. And my friends died because of it. But if we forget who we are, if we stop fighting by our rules of engagement and IDF code of conduct and IDF values that we had already lost and we cannot lose because we fight the most horrific, vicious terrorists in history. And I told them that when I was in Gaza, I told everyone that I saw that we are not longer just the Israeli Defense Forces. We're also the Jewish Defense Forces because it is scary to be Jewish right now across the world, but we're also the first line of defense of Western civilization, although so many of them just don't get it yet. But they will because they're already here. They're in Europe. They're in America. And it could not have been more proud to be the first line of defense because we're the ones that have felt what our enemies could do when they live up to what they say. And if there is one thing we learned from October 7th is that we need to believe our enemies when they tell us what they want to do. And I'm here to tell you that the IDF will keep fighting for all those who live for the sake of living and against those who live for the sake of killing wherever they are. And the war between, between Israel and Hamas, I believe it's a small part of a bigger war we're going to have to win together. We are going to win the war with Hamas because we're stronger, because we value life, but also because we have no other option. Because last time we didn't have Israel, we didn't have the IDF to protect us, six million of our people died. But if we as Western civilization don't wake up and understand that Israel is its first line of defense, the only representative of Western civilization in the Middle East, surrounded by the most horrific terrorist organizations in the world from the Hamas to Hezbollah to the Houthis to Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and so many others and not surrounded by Canada and Mexico. We're just the easy target because we're to be blamed for two things. We're Jewish and we're in the Middle East and that makes us an easy target and the other side is brilliant to make it about Judaism because we'll always be a minority. Strong people but still a minority. And the fact they do it aliens us from the rest of Western civilization that 
makes it a problem of the Jews. And we need to open their eyes and show them that this is Western civilization problems. And all we have to do is listen to our enemies when they tell us that their end goal is not just to kill Jews, it's to kill infidels or the enemies of Islam, Christians as well, and Hindus and Catholic, and then to destroy Western civilization and build the great Islamic state on top of it. That's why I came to tell them because we truly feel this in Israel right now and we cannot have been more proud. And when they talk about genocide, we tell them that first, it's not true. If we didn't care about the Palestinian civilians on the other side, there would be no Palestinians on the other side. And this war could have been over on October 8th and my friends would have still been alive. But we do and did more than any other military force in history to protect the civilian population on the other side. And this shows in number, in numbers. And if we want to talk numbers for a second, let's let's say we believe Hamas Rule Ministry of Health, which we don't, we know not to believe, but let's take their number from a week ago. There was 25,000 casualties in Gaza since October 7. This is the same organization that five minutes after the hospital bombing says that Israel did it and there are over 500 dead. We know neither of these things are true. They're a terrorist organization. But let's take their number to be conservative. And we know that the IDF has killed over 10,000 confirmed Hamas terrorists. We know that on top of that, we've killed Islamic Jihad terrorists and independent terrorists. We know that a few thousands were killed by Hamas and Jihad and Islamic Jihad, but misfiring rockets, about 20% of their launches fell in Gaza. And for killing people for running away from being human shields. But let's be conservative and only take the 10,000 and 25,000. And according to the UN, we know that the urban warfare, the average ratio between combatants, terrorist soldiers, whatever, and civilians is one to nine. Nine casualties in civilian population and one combatant. And even if we're so, so conservative, the ratio is one to one and a half, and that's the best one in history. And we should be proud of that. We're still sad for uninvolved civilians who lost their lives. But what would they expect? Hamas wants them to die. Hamas uses them as human shield. And we die because of our morality. But we're also proud of our morality. So I'm here to tell you that the next war, and yeah, maybe the IDF will have to face Hezbollah as well, and maybe the West Bank as well. And we need your support because you make us stronger. We literally feel the support on our bodies with the equipment we wear. And when we leave Gaza, we feel it with the warm food and programs that we can enter. But we then have a bigger war, and this war is going to be to prove that our lives are worth just like anyone else's. And, and that calling for the genocide of Jews is just as horrible as calling for the genocide of anyone else. And that raping a woman is just as bad as raping any other women. And this war will determine if we can walk in the streets of New York City or anywhere else, wearing our yarmulkes with Star of David, and light Hanukkah candles without looking over our shoulders, because I believe that if we don't wake up, this will not be taken for granted in a few years. And this war starts with the Jews, but it's going to Western civilization next. And my grandparents, the Holocaust survivors, promised my parents they will raise them to a better world. It was easy. They were Holocaust survivors. But my parents promised the same thing to me. And I want to promise my kids the same. And I believe you promised yours as well. And I'm here to tell you that if we don't wake up, you're not going to be able to fulfill this promise. So we have to come together, understand that this is a historic time, that we can't be afraid. We can't look the other way. We can't go back to our normal lives when the ceasefire starts. We have to understand that this is the fight of our life that will determine if we live and grow our world, our kids to a better world or not.
that is the Western civilization versus those who seek to destroy it. But I can see the optimism because when you see a small light in a dark room, the closer you get to it, the brighter will be. And together, I have no doubt that we will win. But just like the war with Hamas will win, you know, just because we can, but because we have no other choice. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Shahar. I mean, I'm, I'm so, so emotional. emotional. And I'm, and I'm sure, sure that everybody, everybody here watching is emotional too. We're, we're horrified at what you have had to experience. We're inspired by your incredible perspective and resilience and devotion and um, moral fiber. And we're grateful. We're grateful that we have an army filled with incredible lights like you. It's just, my heart is full. And I just want to, on behalf of every person watching this, that's the hundreds watching it right now and the thousands that are going to watch it and every friend of the IDF around the planet, we're hugging you and we love you and we appreciate you and we thank you. And it's unending. Um, and I want to, you know, because you're such an incredibly articulate and thoughtful um, representative of uh, who has been there on the front lines, if it's okay, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, Happily. Yeah. You know, I, on October 7th, we saw, you know, forget what would happen if we didn't have the IDF for one day. What would happen if we didn't have the IDF for a few hours? Just this horrible witnessing of the viciousness of the neighbors next door, I guess, having witnessed everything that you've seen and being the grandson of survivors who saw Holocaust denial, we're already seeing 10-7 denial. Having been there, how does that affect you? And when you hear it firsthand on college campuses or in your interviews, you know, how do you respond? What do you say when they so willingly have HD footage of it? What do you, how do you, how does it affect you? First, you know, it saddens me because it's not just coming from the radicals. They've managed to get to so many people and convince them they support the oppressed and convince them that the strong oppress oppressing white people are trying to change their minds, just show them that they are the victims. And they've managed to convince hundreds of thousands, probably millions, they support the oppressed because they can't grasp the understanding that someone can be the underdog but also the villain and i see these people and i'm sad because i know they're being brainwashed it's not uneducation it's miseducation they've been misled to believing that they support the oppressed when they actually support terrorism and they don't see that we are the same because if they had been there outside of gaza on october 7th they too would have been beheaded and burned they too would have been kidnapped and all they have to do is just literally translate the charters of the organizations that some Hamas and ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah and Iran and Houthis to just understand that they're coming for them as well. And this is what saddens me, that they're brilliant. The PR of Hamas and Qatar and Iran that basically slowly and surely took over more and more power and put on more and more of their people in positions of power in America and Western civilization they've been working on this for years and they're succeeding when you hear that on TikTok there are over 20 times more views for pro-palestinian content than for israeli not 20 percent 20 times 2000 percent and when you hear the poll that's 52 percent of americans age 18 to 24 52 percent believe that the best way to end this war would be to hand israel as a whole to hamas 
we understand that this is bigger than us. This is a Western civilization problem that we're the first ones to suffer. But this also gives us the responsibility to wake the world up. Because if you think the next 9-11 is far away, I think we are wrong. And it can be 10 times worse. Just like if we're not careful, if we don't protect ourselves, the next 10-7 can be 10 times worse. And we have to make sure it never happens, just like any other sovereign country would. It's not something we can rationalize with. It's a radical jihadist education system that brainwashes people from the age of three to hate and kill, tell them that the best outcome of their life would be to become a shaheed, a martyr, and kill infidels with them. And Allah will be waiting for them with 77 virgins, and their families will be taken care of, and they'll be heroes. You can't rationalize with that. They believe that life on earth is short, and life in heaven is eternal. It's not something you can talk to. We need to de-radicalize this and believe them because they're not going to stop. Speaking of the misinformation and the intentional brainwashing from such a young age, the big headline in the news over the last couple of days, of course, has been UNRWA and just the enormous um, ex their exposure as aiding and abetting and actually being terrorists, you know, not over 10% of them active. Um, huge percentages have family members who are actual terrorists in Hamas and all of the affiliations and just that all of this money has been that people thought they were sending for humanitarian aid and we're just finding so much evidence. Um, can you speak to, did you come across anything like that while you, if are if you're able to speak to it, did you see any of this while you were in Gaza, the, you know, the, the United Nations ambulances, for example, being used um, for, for terrorism, or are you able to speak to any of this? Yes, I'm not allowed to speak about specific operations for the reason I mentioned, but, you know, we knew that for years, but now when we're in Gaza, it's much easier to prove, and when over 1,200 UNRWA members, employees, paid professionals are terrorists and are connected to terrorism. So many of them have been a part of October 7th. You know, we knew that your taxpayer money is being used by terrorists. The UN and so many countries are literally paying a terrorist organization that has a camouflage named UNRWA that helps people in Gaza. But Hamas controls everything. And UNRWA members, many of them are part of Hamas. And we knew we saw UNRWA. Um, facilities and UNRWA um, buildings and UNRWA or organizations uh, gear used by the terrorists and UNRWA cars and you know you see that all the time because the terrorists control UNRWA the UN thinks it control UNRWA but the UN, the UN doesn't really care the UN is there literally for the Palestinians why do you think there is one organization for Palestinian refugees and another one for the rest of the world why do you think Palestinians are the only ones who can take the title of refugee with them to the next generations. So you can be a third generation living in Los Angeles, having billions of dollars and still be a refugee and get money from the world. Why do you think they are the only ones who can change the definition of a refugee? So yeah, when you see an ambulance of UNRWA that you know that it had terrorists in it, but we bomb it because they're terrorists, people are going to blame us anyway. And when you see Hamas terrorists in hospitals and schools by UNRWA, and kindergarten, you know, we need to destroy not just the terrorists, but also the infrastructure. And we know that no matter what we do, the world is going to condemn us. But first, we need to survive. And then we, we, we need to win the war of people to actually see the truth. And this will be a longer one. 
but just as important for our future. And I hope it's not going to be as bloody. Amen to that. Um, well, before we wrap up, you know, on behalf of all of us, we want to extend our condolences for, you know, the, your two brothers in arms who were killed just today and for Daniel. And thank you for sharing your incredible story with us and for inspiring us and showing us the true face of the IDF, which we know, but we're so grateful to have you out there sharing it with, with so many people. Um, and my last question is, what are your plans for the future? We hope that that wedding is back on the books. So tell us what's, what's in the future for you. Thank you. So yeah, we have a new date for the wedding. Uh, my unit was supposed to finish its operation in Gaza on January 21st. And then we got a call that we have another mission in there for another month. So I need to go back in. This wasn't planned when I left for America. Um, I hope to get married. I actually started my own company now, and I want to focus on this. I want to have normal problems, just like I had on October 6th. Um, I don't know when it will happen. We don't know what will happen with Hezbollah. We have a lot of rebuilding and recreating in Israel. We need to heal, and we need to start closing wounds, but also carry this scar on our bodies forever, the scar of October 7th, as a reminder of what will happen if we're divided and what happens when our enemies live up to what they say. And we owe it to everyone who is not with us anymore, to all those who are murdered and all the idea of soldiers who were killed, including my friends, to share this with anyone and make sure that we ensure the future of Israel, that we make it better than it was, more amazing than it was, and this beacon of peace in the Middle East, a house for all Jews and all those who value life. And if we take this car with us for our whole lives and we do what we promised that we, we will do to make sure their memory is forever and they didn't die in vain, that one positive outcome. There aren't many. And lastly, I will say that, you know, thank you for having me. And I'm really not a hero. I haven't done anything heroic. The heroes are ones they are still in Gaza right now. I'll join them in a few days, but they are the ones who've been there for so long while well, I was in and out going to America and back. And I'm speaking on their behalf, but also on the behalf of the heroes who are in heaven right now because they pay the ultimate price. And the future has to have them in mind. We have to remember them. We have to commemorate them and we have to make sure they didn't die in vain. The only way is to build a stronger Israel, a better Israel, but also use this to strong a better world, to build a better world. And this is just the beginning. You're amazing. What can I tell you people? Like, thank God, thank God that you're with us. Um, and, you know, we we can't wait to see many Shachars. We can't wait for that wedding. We can't wait to see them. And we share your vision for that incredible, you know, that incredible Israel that is safe and prosperous and healthy and all of the people um, able to live freely and being their most realized selves. We share that vision and we will stand by you all the way, as long as it takes, we will be there. And we just, we're sending every single blessing, all of our thoughts, all of our wishes, all of our hopes so that you and your fellow soldiers should be safe, that every last hair on your head should be completely safe, untouched, 
and that you should be safe, victorious, healthy in mind, body, and spirit. And we just, we love you and we appreciate you. We're forever indebted to you. So thank you. Thank you. I truly appreciate the support and I speak on behalf of all of us. We do not take it for granted. And this is really making us feel like you have our backs just like we have yours.